Good morning. Uh, I have the privilege of finishing out the series on uh, Fail Forward, talking about spiritual disciplines and how to deal with failure. And over the last few weeks, Bobby's been doing a great job preaching on uh, just the different ways we handle failure, whether it's overcoming it, preventing it, or getting back on track after it. Uh, and for, for us in the Christian faith, that can be sin. Uh, I also consider, I also, when I think of failures, I think of the uncontrollable aspects of life that we all face, uh, whether it's uh, job loss, financial struggles, health struggles, anything like that. You know, there's a lot that comes up in life. And uh, today, as we get to close out this series, I'm going to talk a little bit about the church and handling failure in the church. So, and this morning I'm going to bounce around between a handful of things, and I'm going to touch on some of the stuff Bobby's preached on over the last few weeks. So, uh, but when we're talking about failure, when we're talking about failure, I think, you know, we, we strive for success. And for many, success is, is a difficult feat. I mean, I think of it in a lot of different ways, but I know for many, their view of success is to be without fail. They're chasing after perfection. They're, that's their only view of success is you're only successful if nothing goes wrong, which is a little ridiculous sometimes because things go wrong. It happens. I mean, uh, and there's so many different things we can measure success for, but to compare it to perfection, to, to compare it to without failure, without error, is difficult. I mean, even uh, I, I'm a big sports fan, so when it comes to perfe perfection, I think of baseball and the, the feat of the perfect game, which is the most difficult thing to achieve in baseball because it requires everyone on the team to be on the same level and to not make any errors. And even in the major leagues, which I looked this up because I wanted to know, and I've never actually, I've thought of perfect games, but I've never thought of the statistics behind it. And this m probably hasn't been updated to this year, but it's still pretty cool. 140 years of the major league baseball, over 235,000 games over 140 years, and of all those games, 235,000, only 23 perfect games. Only 23. Which makes that statistic account for 0.01% of all games. You have a 0.01% chance of getting a perfect game in Major League Baseball. And these are the guys that are getting paid millions, like, per year to play at this level of play. And apparently, even in the postseason when, you know, they try to crank it up and do even better, only one perfect game has ever been played in the postseason. I mean, perfection is a, that's a good goal, but let's be realistic. Especially we can account for it. No one's perfect, let's be honest. But for many, I mean, any athletes, they strive for being successful without error. Uh, Kobe Bryant was once quoted in saying, I am chasing perfection, and if I don't get it, I'm going to come this close. I mean, and he was pretty good. I'm not going to say he's one of, he's the greatest. I'm going to say he's one of the greatest. So let's not start a debate on a Sunday morning. Um, 
but athletes aren't the only ones who are chasing this perfection to be without failure. Uh, anyone with any type of passion. I mean, I went to a, the, the kids' concert and choir and band stuff a few weeks ago, and I try to be encouraging. That's, I try to do that, especially with those kids. And middle school band, you've got to love it. They, they are passionate about it because they don't stick it out if they don't like it. And I try to say, hey, and I don't have a musical ear, so when I say, you sounded great, I'm, I'm genuine. But I can tell you, they know, well, I got off beat. Well, I missed this whole chunk. You didn't hear that? It's like, I'm, I'm deft in music. I don't know. Uh, but they are so quick to say, I made a mistake. It's, I mean, musicians, I mean, that's a good thing to practice perfection on, but even the best can make a mistake. Uh, another one I think that chases perfection, I think, is craftsmen. Uh, when it comes to carpenters, woodworkers, builders, I mean, let's be honest, even if you sew, you knit, you crochet, you know, you chase after something without error. I remember seeing my grandma make a quilt and there was one mistake, and she didn't notice it until it was done, and then, oh, the whole thing has to be thrown out because you can't look at it without seeing that one knot that's wrong. I mean, yeah. I mean, last week when I went home for a funeral, I met a pastor at my home church, and he had a really cool hobby because I entered into his office, and it's covered with blades, axes, swords, knives. He was a hobby blacksmith, and I thought, oh, that's really cool. He says, yeah, there's something really, really refreshing about hitting white hot steel after a bad day. I said, okay. I mean, uh, everyone has their way of letting off a little steam. And he also compared it to ministry because in a way you're working and pouring into people you, and you see like the work blossom. He says in the same way when you hit metal, you can see it instantly. And at the end, you can see a finished piece of work. But he's also said that, yep, I've thrown out a lot of bad pieces of metal. I mean, we all make mistakes. Let's go back to Kobe Bryant because he's a really good illustration for this. Because sometimes to achieve success, it takes a lots and lots of failures. And he often rebuked and put down a lot of guys for not matching his intensity in practice because he never left the gym until he shot 1,000 shots a day. And a lot of people said, he works too hard. Well, success follows hard work. And success will follow failure. It does, if you let it. Thomas Edison was quoted in regards of creating the electric light bulb and how he threw out over 10,000 broken light bulbs. And when he said, wow, you, you failed 10,000 times, he said, I didn't fail 10,000 times. I just found and learned 10,000 ways of not making a light bulb. Failure is inevitable. It's inevitable, but it's also essential to achieve success. I mean, reaching perfection just doesn't happen. You're not going to happen overnight. No one's going to fall into uh, becoming an expert in their hobby, in their passion. I mean, it, and it really applies to our faith as well. Consider this. Uh, some of the great church fathers, they made mistakes and they turned into great leaders. 
They turned into great preachers. And today, as we're talking about the church and failure in the church, I mean, I'm not saying it's essential to fail, because failure in the church can mean sin. But every sin is a lesson. Every sin can be a lesson. And the church is definitely not immune to failure, because let's be honest, so many people, I think, when it comes to the idea of the church, they're looking for a perfect community. They're looking for a place where they fit in, where everything's going to be perfect. They're going to come in and they're going to feel, they're going to leave church feeling uh, blessed and wonderful. No church is going to be perfect. No church is perfect because we're made up of imperfect people. And if we're imperfect, then church is going to be imperfect. Doesn't mean it's not going to be good. Doesn't mean we're not going to bless each other. Doesn't mean we're not going to learn and grow closer to God. It does not mean that won't happen. But what really, really hurts is when sin pops up in the church, it may cut a little deeper because we know better, which makes it hurt way more. But the perfect church, the perfect church, it's, it's a pipe dream because we're not perfect, but our God we worship is. But that doesn't mean we quit. That doesn't mean we abandon this desire to grow closer. And especially for perfection in us, the Bible uses the word righteousness. He says, you know, the Bible uses righteousness as walk in righteousness, strive for righteousness. Because that's the idea of being right in the eyes of God. Being without sin. But Paul was clear when he wrote Romans, he says, you know, we all will fall short. We all have fallen short. And instead... How do we figure out how to strive and walk towards righteousness while not letting our failures break our desire to glorify Christ? Like, that's the lifelong pursuit. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 9, it says, It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You see, when we're chasing after righteousness, we got to remember that we do it not to earn salvation. That's already been paid for us. That's already been given. It is nothing we could do for it, but God did it for us through his son, through the grace of his great love. Because if we, if we could live in righteousness and if that saved us, it would be, I mean, there would be no purpose. There would be no need for Jesus. Nothing we can do can make up for what we have already done. No human feet can, can save us. Only the grace of God. So being perfect, being without fail, living in righteousness, it's impossible. But that doesn't mean we quit. And it doesn't mean we're not saved. Because Bobby preached on sanctification last week, or a few weeks ago, not last week, but... A few weeks ago, and he, that's, this is exactly what he talked about, how despite us, despite us being sinful, despite us being failures, at, <laughs> not all the time, but we can feel like it, we are still made perfect. We are still sanctified. Hebrews chapter 10, 14 says, For by that one sacrifice, he forever made perfect those who were being made holy. 
when it comes to the idea of the church, the idea of being a Christian or walking in faith, we got to remember here that the grace of God is greater than any failure. It's bigger than any sin. It, it is so much bigger. And I hate the thought of I can't come to church, I've done too much. Well, you don't know my, how big my God is, how powerful our God is, how great his grace is. Because it doesn't matter what life throws at us. It doesn't matter whether it's temptation, hardships of life, sin. It doesn't matter. We are all still here by the grace of God. And it doesn't matter what life throws at us because we're all here and we're still meant to be a community. We're still meant to be a community. We're and that's a, a really cool word, but I sometimes think it's an overused word because I think community, we think of that like, oh, it's just people around us. But God calls us to be a different kind of community in the world, a community that looks out for one another, not just lives next to. Like, we're, we're in this together. He, he kind of calls us to be together, be united. Romans chapter 14. Paul tells the church in Rome, in verses 13 through 23, he says this, Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. Just as one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself, but if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. And if your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better to not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. This is what he calls us to be as a community, looking out for one another by what we do, even if it comes down to what we eat or drink. We may not have those struggles, but some next to us may. And uh, this hits home for me because I witnessed, I witnessed this at a previous church where I got involved in a life group. Friday night, a bunch of people would get together, 20 to 30 people get together every Friday night, share a meal together, because it's biblical and it's good, worship, Bible study, you know, and there's something simple about sitting on a bunch of couches in a basement and some guy with an acoustic guitar and then reading the Bible, something blessing. But this was a little culture shock for me because they drank. They drank beers and stuff on a Friday night. 
And for me growing up, I was told, oh, you can't mix those two things. You can't mix, you know, Bible study and beer, alcohol, anything like that. But it was, it was how they, that was just how they functioned. But there was one man who wanted to be involved. He came once. Everyone said, go grab a drink, make yourself at home. Very welcoming. But he was years sober, pursuing sobriety, and that was part of his struggle. He didn't partake, but at the same time, after the first time, he went and talked to the, the pastor in charge of this, and he said, I don't think I can participate because I'm pursuing sobriety. And so them as a group came together, and they decided, hey, we're going to put that away, take it out of the fridge, and that's not going to happen. So 30 people got together and decided, we're not going to do this in front of him for his sake so that he can stay involved. What are we willing to do so that others can grow in Christ? What are we willing to do? Because this isn't just about making someone comfortable. That's, it's much more than that. Because if, if Christ is important and keeping others focused on Christ is important, what are we willing to do? What are we willing to give up? And here's the deal. When it comes to combating sin, I mean, that's a, that's a way to say it. Keeping sin out. The best way to keep sin out is stay focused on Christ. Keep our eyes on that prize, and the temptations that life throws at us will be minimal. Matthew 14 shares a story. And I'm going to touch on Peter a little bit today because he's a great example. This is the story of when Jesus had spoken and he sent his disciples across the lake. They got in a boat and was kind of storming out. And he was going to meet up with them. And that's where we're going to be in, in Matthew 14, verse 22. And it said, immediately... Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. And while he dismissed the crowd, after he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat was already a considerable, considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. And during the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said. And they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind... He was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Do you guys see what happened? It was fine as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus. As, as long as he was watching Jesus, he could walk, which I've never met anyone who could walk on water. That's impressive. I mean, not at least while it's not frozen. But uh, either way, he was, as long as he focused on Jesus, he could walk. I mean... Does this sound familiar? You begin to see and pay attention to the storm around you. And then you start getting preoccupied and you start getting distracted and you forget what you're focusing on and you begin to sink. 
the best way to fight sin is to focus on Christ. And here's the deal. The best part about focusing on Christ is we don't have to do it alone. We are not here alone. Like We're all here with the same purpose, the same goal, and God has instructed us to be like responsible with each other. Not responsible of each other, be responsible with each other. We're here to work together. I'm supposed to look out for you. You're supposed to look out for me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he's a great church writer, but he said this about the church. The church is not a religious community of worshipers of Christ, but it's Christ himself who has taken form among people. You see, we have a duty, we have a responsibility to Christ's church. And he has given us, Christ gave us responsibility because we have chosen accountability. We choose, to, we have chosen, if we're here, we have chosen to be accountable of ourselves and each other. And that's our, our responsibility to each other and to his church. So here's the deal. What do we do? What do we do? The question comes up is, what do we do when there is failure? Because we're not, we're not perfect. Failure is going to happen. Sin's going to happen. What do we do about it? Because it's not an if. It's not an if we fail. It's just a when we fail. What do we do about it? I mean, the Bible basically gave us step-by-step instructions on <laughs> what to do about it. Matthew 18, Jesus basically told us how to do this. Verses 15, and 15 through 17, it says this. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along with you, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. He's basically saying, all right, if if sin pops up, if this brother is well-connected, vine in the branches, connected to the vine, all it should take is one. You go and do it out of love and say, hey, we know you messed up. Let's get you back on track. And that's all it should take. But if it doesn't, go with a couple others in love. Say, hey, we know you messed up. And even if that doesn't work, then we have to treat them like they don't believe. Because they might be lost. I mean, I think of this too, because this sometimes the sin can be great. Sometimes the problem can be too big for one alone. But here's the deal. God puts people in our lives for a purpose. I mean, let's, let's look at a really powerful story of sin. Everyone knows the story of King David, yes, and this is a good one. You know, David had, was the king of everything, and he was, he was so good, and he was called the man after God's own heart. And yet, even when he went up onto his balcony, looked over the whole city, and he saw something that he wanted, and that human part of him was like, yep, I want that. He saw this beautiful woman bathing, and he called her in, slept with her. She became pregnant. You know the story of him and Bathsheba. And to cover up his sin, 
called her husband home from war, tried to get him and her together, didn't work. Tried to get him drunk, didn't work. Well, send him back to war with a note. Send him to the deepest part of the battle, pull your troops back so he dies, which happens. And then David marries this woman. Ah, no one knows, none the wiser, we're all good. God knows our sins. God knows our failures. God knows our mistakes. Because here's what happens. God sent a prophet named Nathan. And he told him that this story. It's like, oh, King David, let me tell you the story of this rich man who had many cattle and many sheep. And then there was a poor man who only had one. And he treated it like a family member. It drank from his own cup and he slept in his arms. Well, when the rich man wanted to have a banquet, he didn't want to sacrifice what he had. So he took the poor man's sheep. Is that fair, King David? And David said, no, of course not. What would you do? He said, I'd punish that man. And Nathan said, King David, that was you, because your sins are not invisible to God. God knows our failures too. God puts people in our lives to remind us that we need to focus on Christ, and our, our failures and our sins will not go unnoticed. And this, again, this whole idea of bringing sin to light, we need to not treat it as, a, as shame. We're not meant to shame our brothers and sisters, but we're meant to use it as a lesson to remember that sin is serious, sin has a cost, and we need to still strive for righteousness and focus on Christ. That is still our duty. That is still our call. But what do we do? What do we do when sin pops up? What do we do when it's been addressed? What do we do for our brothers and sisters when they have sinned? How do we help them? Paul writes to the church in Galatia. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 2, it says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Restore that person gently. Restore that person gently. Because remember, the grace of God is powerful. We, <laughs> there is no sin that can't be forgiven, and there's no addiction that can't be overcome. Let's talk about Peter again, because he's a great story. And let's go to Luke chapter 22. You guys know this. It's Luke's great sin. And this is what it says, because this was after Jesus was arrested. And Jesus even warned him beforehand, hey, he's like, hey, there's going to come a time of tribulation for you disciples. And some of you may be tempted to deny me. And Peter, oh, Peter, I feel like he's kind of a, I'm, I'm, I think he's young because he's kind of silly. But he said, Lord, I would die before I deny you. Like he said that. So remember that as we read this in Luke twenty-two fifty-four, <laughs> And this is what he says. When they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. 
And then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat down in the light, looked closely at him and said, This man was with him, but he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You are also one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, Certainly this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you were talking about. And immediately while he was speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered that the, Lord, the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. I mean, Peter was so good. Let me, well, he was he was like so good. He wasn't a good fisherman. We'll get to that in a second. But he was so good at following Jesus. When Jesus went up on the mountain with his disciples and there was, and he asked them, hey, who do the people say I am? Some say you're the prophet Isaiah. Some say, call you rabbi. Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Oh, Peter's kind of a, you know, teacher's pet, but it, it, he was not wrong. And Jesus said, oh, Peter, you you is the rock I'll build my church on. Like Peter, Peter was good. He was pretty good. But the story, the story of his mistake has an ending. John chapter 21. You see, after Jesus rose from the dead, what the disciples did was they, they thought they were done. They thought it was all gone. And what they did was they went back to what they knew. For Peter, he was a fisherman. And by the way, every time we see Peter fishing in the Bible, he never catches anything unless Jesus shows up, which is funny that that's his career. But, like, go back and look. It's absolutely amazing. But they're out fishing in the middle of the night, which apparently is the best time to go fishing. I'm not much of a fisherman. I mean, so anyway. But Jesus shows up and they haven't caught anything all night and he's on the he's on the coast sees them out on the boat you guys caught anything and they say no they can't see who it is probably because it's dark but he says no throw your net on the other side of the boat not a big fisherman but i can't imagine that's how that works you know which they throw it on the other side of the boat miracle and I imagine they start to begin, you know, put two things together. Okay, we couldn't catch fish all night. Now we can't even haul this net into the boat. Okay, that guy's important. Oh, that, they basically say, oh, that's, that's our Lord Jesus. And so Jesus calls them together, says, bring your fish we cat. Let's make breakfast and eat. Again, eating, biblical. He cooks some of their fish, and this is what it says in John 21, verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to him, Simon, Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. And he said to him, I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Christ, this is how Christ restores. He reminds us that we failed while reminding us we still have a task. We still have a call. We still have a job to follow, to take care of his sheep each other in the church that job doesn't change no matter what sins we commit no matter how bad we fail no matter how hard life gets we are still have a job here to do you see Peter had a choice he could have stayed in the boat he could have stayed in the boat he could have gave up and he said alright following Jesus is not for me God calls us to persevere, to, that no matter what comes at us, we fail, we sin, we make mistakes, others fail, they make mistakes, we can give up. A lot of people give up, but God calls us to persevere because failure is only final when perseverance becomes optional. When we see this as an option, that's when that's the ultimate failure. God doesn't call us to persevere. He doesn't say that's optional. That is a command to keep going. We sin, repent, and keep going. Man, this whole message is talking about the failure of the church. The failure of the church is that we're not restoring our brothers and sisters the way God calls us to. And as I, as I get ready to close out this morning's message, I wanted to share one more story. So as I ask the worship team to come back up, I, I have one story, and uh, I think I've shared the story of this to someone, maybe a, a few more personal groups. But uh, there's a man I know, and I, I grew up, in a very small blue-collar town, similar to this one. Grew up in a farming community, so I knew guys who drove tractors, you know, uh, walked cornfields, stuff like that. Like, hard labor. When they relaxed, they relaxed, and often it included, you know, partaking in activities at the local bar. Grew up in a town with one bar, one gas station, that type of place, that's where I was. And I remember going to friends' houses growing up, and their dads, as soon as they got off work, they were at the bar front. That's where they got their dinner, and that's where they were until they were ready to call it a night to come home and do it all over again. Well, the man who owned that bar, he started it because he loved food and he enjoyed drinking. Well, that drinking became an addiction. And once he realized how he was hurting people, he needed to make a change, and he seeked out Celebrate Recovery, AA, and he seeked out the church. 
And when he gave his life to Christ, he pursued sobriety, and he took his bar and grill. He stopped selling alcohol. He took the building next to it, which is where he stored his kegs and everything. He turned that into a cross shop and sold Bibles, books, and woodworking, like crosses to hang around your house. And he got involved in the church with and did not look back. He turned, uh, he turned his restaurant into an ice, a restaurant and ice cream shop. It was great. But he, he had a passion, and one of the passions was cooking. He could cook better than anyone. And he said, I can do that for the church. And he cooked at every function, every potluck. He cooked at every funeral, every dinner, everything. He cooked every Wednesday night for the youth group and the kids. Ten years sobriety, more than that. He got super involved in the church, led Bible studies, small group stuff, men's ministries. He cooked steak and eggs every Friday, like every Saturday morning for a men's ministry. Oh, it was a blessing. Well, when he, when he failed, he relapsed after 10 years, more than 10 years of sobriety. The church came to him and helped him, but he understood that he had to step down from some responsibility. It's only natural. He has to work back up to that. But he still had that gift of being an amazing cook, and he still said, I can still do that. Because at his heart, he was a servant. At his heart, he still believed that he, could, he was part of the church. They didn't kick him out. They didn't exclude him. He was still part. He still had gifts, and he could still benefit the kingdom. When it comes to sin in the church, it will happen, but how we handle sin, how we handle failure, shows what we're keeping focus on. If we're striving for perfection and only perfection, we will fail. But if we're striving to glorify Christ, not even our sin and our failures will hold us back. Because there is way more grace in Christ than there will ever be sin in us. There is way more grace, way more love, way more forgiveness in God than there will ever be mistakes that we can make. There is no sin too great that God can't forgive. There is no one too lost that God can't find. Failure, failure is only fatal when we let it be fatal. Instead, we're called to let Christ in. So today, as I, as I close up and I finish up my, this message, I want to give up an opportunity. Maybe you, maybe you have had too many failures and you need, you need some forgiveness. You need to get back in and focus on Christ. You've taken your eyes off of him and you're focusing on the storms around you. Well, today is a perfect time to get back on track and focus on Christ. Maybe you have a brother and sister who's failed and you want to get them back on track. Maybe you've got some forgiving and some restoring of others to do. Maybe you just need prayer. Maybe you just need uh, to pray. You need to be prayed for. Maybe you have someone you want to pray for and you want us to pray for together. Then today's a great day to do that as well. Maybe you, you are... 
Maybe you're just sick of trying to achieve perfection on your own. And you want to let God in for the first time today. That'd be great too. If you need to make a decision, if you need prayer, I pray that you seek out someone in the church together because God did not put us here alone. We are here together. We don't have to chase after righteousness. We don't have to seek after Christ alone. So as I pray and we worship, I pray you you remember we're here together. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we remember that your, your great love is greater than anything we could ever do, Lord, I pray we remember what you've done for us. Lord, I pray we remember the sacrifice you made, the love you have for us, the grace and the forgiveness you provide. Lord, help us to remain in you, stay connected in you. Lord, I pray we reach out to others who are lost. Lord, I pray we, we forgive, we give grace, Lord, we attempt to restore. Lord, I pray we, we let your love flow through us and pour out on the world around us. Lord, I pray we never let our failures become fatal. Lord, I pray for perseverance. I pray for repentance. Lord, bless us this day as we, we worship, Lord, and we remember your love for us. And help us to love those around us. In your son's holy name, I pray.